two twin brothers born from a little goldfish, a page boy who discovers a goblet of never-ending wine, and an account of magic fey words that teleport oneself across the world and the tale of travelling into the fey universe, where the passage of time is vastly different. Aye, laddie and lassie, for the Scottish tales, for you lovely folk, narrated in the audiobook format, no music, straight narration. And that's enough of that, mates. <laughs> Looking at all my Scottish subscribers just declining. Ooh. <laughs> Listeners, today's set of four tales is a mixture of two folk tales and two fae accounts, which are really fascinating because the accounts are cemented in real-world details, and to this day exist as artifacts and interesting trivia regarding the fae. So join me for some leather and scran and a lovely set of tales. Enjoy. Once there was a fisherman who had plenty of money, but no children. One day, an old woman came to his wife and said, What use is all your prosperity to you when you have no children? It is God's will, answered the fisherman's wife. Nay, my child, it is not God's will, but the fault of your husband. For if he would but catch the little goldfish, you would surely have children. Tonight, when he comes home, tell him he must go back and catch the little fish. He must then cut it into six pieces. One of these you must eat, and your husband the second. And soon after, you will have two children. The third piece you must give to your dog, and she will have two puppies. The fourth piece to the mare, and she will have two foals. The fifth piece Bury on the right of the house door, and the sixth on the left, and two cypress trees will spring up there. When the fisherman came home at evening, his wife told him all that the old woman had advised, and he promised to bring home the little goldfish. Next morning, therefore, he went very early to the water and caught the little fish. Then they did as the old woman had ordered, and in due time, the fisherman's wife had two sons so like each other, that not one could tell the difference. The dog had two puppies exactly alike, the mare had two foals, and on each side of the front door there sprang up two cypress trees precisely similar. When the two boys were grown up, they were not content to remain at home, though they had wealth in plenty, but they wished to go out into the world and make a name for themselves. Their father would not allow them both to go at once, as they were the only children he had. He said, First one shall travel, and when he is come back, then the other may go. So the one took his horse and his dog and went, saying to his brother, So long as the cypress trees are green, there is a sign that I am alive and well. But if one begins to wither, then make haste and come to me. So he went forth into the world. One day he stopped at the house of an old woman, and as at evening he sat before the door, he perceived in front of him a castle standing on a hill. He asked the old woman to whom it belonged, and her answer was, My son, it is the castle of the fairest in the land, and I am come here to woo her. That, my son, many have sought to do, and have lost their lives in the attempt, for she has cut off their heads and stuck them on the post you see standing there. And the same will she do to me, or else I shall be victor, for tomorrow 
I go there to court her. Then he took his zither and played upon it so beautifully that no one in all the land had ever heard the like, and the princess herself came to the window to listen. The next morning the fairest in the land sent for the old woman and asked her, Who is it that lives with you and plays the zither so well? It is a stranger, princess, who arrived yesterday evening, answered the old woman, and the princess then commanded that the stranger should be brought to her. When he appeared before the princess, she questioned him about his home and his family, and about this and that, and confessed at length that his zither-playing gave her great pleasure, and that she would take him for her husband. The stranger replied that it was with that intent he had come. The princess then said, You must now go to my father and tell him you desire to have me to wife, and when he has put the three problems before you, then come back and tell me. The stranger then went straight to the king and told him that he wished to wed his daughter. And the king answered, I shall be well pleased, provided you can do what I impose upon you. If not, you will lose your head. Now listen, out there on the ground, there lies a thick log, which measures more than two fathoms. If you can cleave it into two with one stroke of your sword, I will give you my daughter to wife. If you fail, then it will cost you your head. Then the stranger withdrew and returned to the house of the old woman, sore and distressed, for he could believe nothing but the next day he must atone to the king with his head. And so full was he of the idea of how to set about cleaving the log that he forgot even his zither. In the evening came the princess to the window to listen to his playing, and behold, all was still. Then she called to him, Why are you so cast down this evening that you do not play on your zither? And he told her his trouble. But she laughed at it and called to him, And you grieve over that? Bring quickly your zither and play something for my amusement, and early tomorrow come to me. Then the stranger took his zither and played the whole evening for the amusement of the princess. Next morning, she took a hair from her locks and gave it to him, saying, Take this hair and wind it around your sword. Then you will be able to cleave the log in two. Then the stranger went forth and with one blow cleft the log into two. But the king said, I will impose another task upon you before you can wed my daughter. Speak on said the stranger. Listen, then, answered the king. You must mount a horse and ride three miles at full gallop, holding in each hand a goblet full of water. If you spill no drop, then I shall give you my daughter to wife. But should you not succeed, then I will take your life. Then the stranger returned to the house of the old woman, and again he was so troubled as to forget his zither. In the evening the princess came to the window as before, to listen to the music, but again all was still, and she called to him, What is the matter that you do not play on your zither? Then he related all that the king had ordered him to do, and the princess answered, Do not let yourself be disturbed, only play now, and come to me tomorrow morning. The next morning he went to her, and she gave him her ring, saying, Throw this ring into the water, and it will immediately freeze so that you will not spill any. The stranger did as the princess bade him, and carried the water all the way. Then the king said, 
Now, I will give you a third task, and this shall be the last. I have a man who will fight with you tomorrow, and if you are the conqueror, you shall wed my daughter. The stranger returned full of joy to the house of the old woman, and that evening was so merry that the princess called to him, You seem very cheerful this evening. What has my father told you that makes you so glad? He answered, Your father has told me that tomorrow I must fight with his man. He is only another man like myself, and I hope to subdue him and to gain the contest. But the princess answered, This is the hardest of all. I myself am that man, for I swallow a drink that changes me into a man of unconquerable strength. Go tomorrow morning to the market, buy twelve buffalo hides, and wrap them around your horse. Fasten this cloth around you, and when I am let loose upon you tomorrow, show it to me, that I may hold myself back and may not kill you. Then, when you fight me, you must try to hit my horse between the eyes, for when you have killed it, you have conquered me. Next morning, therefore, he went to the market and bought the twelve buffalo hides which he wrapped round his horse. Then he began to fight with the man, and when the combat had already lasted a long time, and eleven hides were torn, then the stranger hit the man's horse between the eyes, so that it fell dead, and the man was defeated. Then said the king, Because you have solved the three problems, I take you for my son-in-law. But the stranger answered, I have some business to conclude first. In fourteen days I will return and bring the bride home. So he arose and went into another country, where he came to a great town and alighted at the house of an old woman. When he had had supper, he begged of her some water to drink. But she answered, My son, I have no water. A giant has taken possession of the spring and only lets us draw from it once a year. When we bring him a maiden, he eats her up and then he lets us draw water. Just now, it is the lot of the king's daughter, and tomorrow she will be led forth. The next day, accordingly, the princess was led forth to the spring, and bound there with a golden chain. After that, all the people went away, and she was left alone. When they had gone, the stranger went to the maiden and asked her what ailed her that she lamented so much, and she answered that the reason was because the giant would come and eat her up. And the stranger promised, that he would set her free if she would take him for her husband, and the princess joyfully consented. When the giant appeared, the stranger set his dog at him, and it took him by the throat and throttled him till he died, so the princess was set free. Now, when the king heard of it, he gladly consented to the marriage, and the wedding took place with great rejoicings. The young bridegroom abode in the palace one hundred and one weeks, then he began to find it too dull, and he desired to go out hunting. The king would fain have prevented it, but in this he could not succeed. Then he begged his son-in-law at least to take sufficient escort with him, but this too the young man evaded and took only his horse and his dog. He had ridden already a long way, when he saw in the distance a hut, and rode straight towards it in order to get some water to drink. There he found an old woman from whom he begged the water. She answered that first he should allow her to beat his dog with her little wand, that it might not bite her while she fetched the water. 
the hunter consented, and as soon as she had touched the dog with her wand, it immediately turned to stone. Thereupon she touched the hunter, and also his horse, and both turned to stone. As soon as that had happened, the cypress trees in front of his father's house began to wither, and when the other brother saw this, he immediately set out in search of his twin. He came first to the town where his brother had slain the giant, and there fate had led him to the same old woman where his brother had lodged. When she saw him, she took him for his twin brother and said to him, Do not take it amiss of me, my son, that I did not come to wish you joy on your marriage with the king's daughter. The stranger perceived what mistake she had made, but only said, That does not matter, old woman, and rode on. Without further speech to the king's palace, where the king and the princess both took him for his twin brother and called out, Why have you tarried so long away? We thought something evil had befallen you. When night came and he slept with the princess, who still believed him to be her husband, he laid his sword between them. And when morning came, he rose early and went out to hunt. Fate led him by the same way which his brother had taken, and from a distance he saw him and knew that he was turned to stone. Then he entered the hut and ordered the old woman to disenchant his brother. But she answered, Let me first touch your dog with my wand, and then I will free your brother. He ordered the dog, however, to take hold of her and bite her up to the knee, till she cried out, Tell your dog to let me go, and I will set your brother free. But he only answered, Tell me the magic words that I may disenchant him myself. And as she would not, he ordered his dog to bite her up to the hip. Then the old woman cried out, I have two wands. With the green one I turn to stone, and with the red one I bring to life again. So the hunter took the red wand and disenchanted his brother, also his brother's horse and his dog, and ordered his own dog to eat the old woman up all together. While the brothers went on their way back to the castle of the king, the one brother related to the other, how the cypress tree had all at once dried up and with it, how he had immediately set out in search of his twin, and how he had come to the castle of his father-in-law and had claimed the princess as his wife. But the other brother became furious on hearing this and smote him over the forehead till he died and returned alone to the house of his father-in-law. When night came and he was in bed, the princess asked him, What was the matter with you last night? that you never spoke a word to me? Then he cried out, That was not me, but my brother, and I have slain him, because he told me, by the way, that he had claimed you for his wife. Do you know the place where you slew him? asked the princess. And can you find the body? I know the place exactly. Then tomorrow we shall ride thither, said the princess. Next morning accordingly they set out together. And when they had come to the place, the princess drew forth a small bottle that she had brought with her, and sprinkled the body with some drops of the water, so that immediately he became alive again. When he stood up, his brother said to him, Forgive me, dear brother, that I slew you in my anger. Then they embraced and went together to the fairest in the land, whom the unmarried brother took to wife. Then the brothers brought their parents to live with them, and all dwelt together in joy and happiness. Horse and Hattic The power of the fairies was not confined to unchristened children alone. It was supposed frequently to be extended to full-grown people, 
especially such as in an unlucky hour, were devoted to the devil by the execrations of parents and of masters, or those who were found asleep under a rock or on a green hill belonging to the fairies, after sunset or finally to those who unwarily joined their orgies. A tradition existed during the 17th century concerning an ancestor of the noble family of Duffers, who, walking abroad in the fields near to his own house, was suddenly carried away and found the next day at Paris in the French king's cellar with a silver cup in his hand. Being brought into the king's presence and questioned by him who he was and how he came thither, he told his name, his country, and the place of his residence, and that on such a day of the month, which proved to be the day immediately preceding, being in the fields, he heard a noise of a whirlwind, and a voice is crying, Horse and Haddock. This is the word which the fairies are said to use when they remove from any place. Whereupon he cried, Horse and Haddock, also, and was immediately caught up and transported through the air by the fairies to that place, where, after he had drunk heartily, he fell asleep. And before he woke, the rest of the company were gone and had left him in the posture wherein he was found. It is said the king gave him a cup which was found in his hand and dismissed him. The narrator affirms that the cup was still preserved, and now by the name of the fairy cup. He adds that Mr. Steward, tutor to the then Lord Duffers, had informed him that when a boy at the school of Fores, he and his schoolfellows were once upon a time whipping their tops in the churchyard, before the door of the church when, though the day was calm, they heard a noise of wind, and at some distance saw the small dust begin to rise and turn around, which motion continued advancing till it came to the place where they were, whereupon they began to bless themselves. But one of their numbers being, it seems, a little more bold and confident than his companion said, Horse and haddock with my top! And immediately they all saw the top lifted up from the ground, but could not see which way it was carried, by reason of a cloud of dust which was raised at the same time. They sought for the top all about the place where it was taken up, but in vain, and it was found afterwards in the churchyard on the other side of the church. This legend is contained in a letter from a learned gentleman in Scotland to Mr. Aubrey, dated 15th of March, 1695, published in Aubrey's Miscellanies. The Page Boy and the Silver Goblet There was once a little page boy who was in service in a stately castle. He was a very good-natured fellow and did his duties so willingly and well that everybody liked him. From the great earl whom he served every day on bended knee to the fat old butler whose errands he ran. Now the castle stood on the edge of a cliff overlooking the sea, and although the walls at that side were very thick, in them there was a little postern door, which opened onto a narrow flight of steps that led down to the face of the cliff to the seashore, so that anyone who liked could go down in that pleasant summer morning and bathe in the shimmering sea. On the other side of the castle were gardens and pleasure grounds, opening onto a long stretch of heather-covered moorland which at last met a distant range of hills. The little page boy was very fond of going out on this moor when his work was done, for then he could run about as much as he liked, chasing bumblebees and catching butterflies and looking for birds' nests when it was nesting time. And the old butler was very pleased that he should do so, 
for he knew that it was good for a healthy little lad to have plenty of fun in the open air. But before the boy went out, the old man always gave him one warning. Now, mind my words, laddie, and keep far away from the fairy Noe, for the little folk are not to trust to. This Noe, of which he spoke, was a little green hillock, which stood on the moor not twenty yards from the garden gate, and folk said that it was the abode of fairies, who would punish any rash mortal who came too near them, and because of this, the country people would walk a good half mile out of their way, even in broad daylight, rather than run the risk of going too near the fairy Noe, and bringing down the little folk's displeasure upon them. And at night, they would hardly cross the moor at all. For everyone knows that fairies come abroad in the darkness, and the door of their dwellings stand open, so that any luckless mortal who does not take care may find himself inside. Now, the little page boy was an adventurous wight, and instead of being frightened of the fairies, he was very anxious to see them and to visit their abode, just to find out what it was like. So one night, when everyone else was asleep, he crept out of the castle by the little postern door and stole down the stone steps and along the seashore and up onto the moor and went straight to the fairy Norway. To his delight, he found that what everyone said was true. The top of the Noe was tipped up, and from the opening that was thus made, rays of light came streaming out. His heart was beating fast with excitement, but gathering his courage, he stooped down and slipped inside the Noe. He found himself in a large room lit by numberless tiny candles, and there, seated around a polished table, were scores of the tiny folk. Fairies and elves and gnomes dressed in green and yellow and pink and blue and lilac and scarlet in all the colours, in fact, that you can think of. He stood in a dark corner watching the busy scene in wonder, thinking how strange it was that there should be such a number of these tiny beings living their own lives all unknown to men at such a little distance from them, when suddenly someone, he could not tell who it was, gave an order. Fetch the cup! cried the owner of the unknown voice, and instantly two little fairy pages, dressed all in scarlet livery, darted from the table to a tiny cupboard in the rock, and returned staggering under the weight of a most beautiful silver cup, richly embossed and lined inside with gold. He placed it in the middle of the table, and, amid clapping of his hands and shouts of joy, all the fairies began to drink out of it in turn and the page could see, from where he stood, that no one poured wine into it, and yet it was always full, and that the wine that was in it was not always the same kind, but that each fairy, when he grasped its stem, wished for the wine that he loved best, and lo, in a moment the cup was full of it. "'Twould be a fine thing if I could take the cup home with me," thought the page. "'No one will believe that I have been here except I have something to show for it.' So he bided his time and watched. Presently, the fairies noticed him, and instead of being angry at his boldness in entering their abode, as he expected that they would be, they seemed very pleased to see him, and invited him to a seat at the table. But by and by they grew rude and insolent, and jeered at him for being content to serve mere mortals, telling him that they saw everything that went on in that castle, and making fun of the old butler whom the page loved with all his heart. And they laughed at the food he ate, saying that it was only fit for animals, and when any fresh dainty was set on the table by the scarlet-clad pages, they would push the dish across to him, saying, Taste it, 
for you will not have the chance of tasting such things at the castle. At last, he could stand their teasing remarks no longer. Besides, he knew that if he wanted to secure the cup, he must lose no time in doing so. So he suddenly stood up and grasped the stem of it tightly in his hand. I'll, I'll drink, drink to you all in water, he cried, and instantly the ruby wine was turned to clear cold water. He raised the cup to his lips, but he did not drink from it. With a sudden jerk, he threw the water over the candles, and instantly the room was in darkness. Then, clasping the precious cup tightly in his arms, he sprang to the opening of the Noe, through which he could see the stars glimmering clearly. He was just in time, for it fell to with a crash behind him, and soon he was speeding along the wet dew-spangled moor with the whole troop of fairies at his heels. They were wild with rage, and from their shrill shouts of fury which they uttered, the page knew well that, if they overtook him, he need expect no mercy at their hands. And his heart began to sink for fleet of foot though he was. He was no match for the fairy folk, who gained on him steadily. All seemed lost when a mysterious voice sounded out of the darkness. If thou wouldst gain the castle door, keep to the black stone on the shore. It was the voice of some poor mortal who, for some reason or other, had been taken prisoner by the fairies, who were really very malicious little folk, and who did not want a like fate to befall the adventurous page boy. But the little fellow did not know this. He had once heard that if anyone walked on the wet sands, where the waves had come over them, the fairies could not touch him. And this mysterious sentence brought the saying into his mind. So he turned and dashed, panting down to the shore. His feet sank into the dry sand, his breath came in little gasps, and he felt as if he must give up the struggle. But he persevered. And at last, just as the foremost fairies were about to lay hands on him, he jumped across the watermark onto the firm wet sand, from which the waves had just receded. And then he knew that he was safe for the little folk could go no step further, but stood on the dry sand uttering cries of rage and disappointment, while the triumphant page boy ran safely along the shore, his precious cup in his arms, and climbed lightly up the steps in the rock, and disappeared through the postern. And for many years after, long after the little page boy had grown up and become a stately butler, who trained other little page boys to follow in his footsteps, the beautiful cup remained in the castle, as a witness of his adventure. Thomas the Rhymer Thomas of Eric Kuldun, called the Rhymer, on account of his producing a poetical romance on the subject of Tristram and Yesult, which is curious as the earliest specimen of English verse known to exist, flourished in the reign of Alexander III of Scotland. Like other men of talent of the period, Thomas was suspected of magic. He was also said to have a gift of prophecy which was accounted for in the following peculiar manner, referring entirely to the elfin superstition. As Thomas lay on the Huntley Bank, a place on the descent of the Eldon Hills, which raised their triple crest above the celebrated monastery of Melrose, he saw a lady so extremely beautiful that he imagined she must be the Virgin Mary herself. Her appointments, however, were those rather of an Amazon or goddess of the woods. Her steed was of the highest beauty, and at its mane hung thirty silver bells and nine, which were music to the wind as she paced along. Her saddle was of royal bone, ivory, laid over with orfevery, goldsmith's work, 
Her stirrups, her dress, all corresponded with her extreme beauty and the magnificence of her array. The fair huntress had her bow in hand and her arrows at her belt. She led three greyhounds in a leash and three hounds of scent followed her closely. She rejected and declaimed the homage which Thomas desired to pay her, so that passing from one extremity to the other, Thomas became as bold as he had at first been humble. The lady warned him he must become her slave if he wished to prosecute his suit. Before their interview terminated, the appearance of the beautiful lady was changed into that of the most hideous hag in existence. A witch from the spittle of Almshouse would have been a goddess in comparison to the late beautiful huntress. Hideous as she was, Thomas felt that he had placed himself in the power of this hag, and when she bade him take leave of the sun and off the leaf that grew off the tree, he felt himself under the necessity of obeying her. A cavern received them, in which, following his frightful guide, he for three days travelled in darkness, sometimes hearing the booming of a distant ocean, sometimes walking through rivers of blood, which crossed their subterranean path. And at length they emerged into daylight in a most beautiful orchard. Thomas, almost fainting for want of food, stretched out his hand towards the goodly fruit which hung around him, but was forbidden by the conductress who informed him that these were the fatal apples which were the cause of the fall of man. He perceived also that his guide had no sooner entered this mysterious ground and breathed its magic air than she was revived in beauty, equipage and splendor as fair or fairer than he had first seen her on the mountain. She then proceeded to explain to him the character of the country. Yonder right-hand path, she says, conveys the spirits of the blessed to paradise. Yon downward a well-worn way leads sinful souls to the place of everlasting punishment. The third road by yonder dark break conducts to the milder place of pain, from which prayer and mass may release offenders. But see you yet a fourth road, Sweeping along the plain to yonder splendid castle, yonder is the road to Elfland, to which we are now bound. The lord of the castle is king of the country, and I am his queen. And when we enter yonder castle, you must observe strict silence, and answer no question that is asked to you, and I will account for your silence by saying, I took your speech when I brought you from Middle-earth. Having thus instructed him, they journeyed onto the castle, and entering by the kitchen, found themselves in the midst of such a festive scene as might become the mansion of a great feudal lord or prince. Thirty carcasses of deer were lying on the massive kitchen board, under the hands of numerous cooks, who toiled to cut them up and dress them, while the gigantic greyhounds which had taken the spoil lay lapping the blood and enjoying the sight of the slain game. They came next to the royal hall, where the king received his loving consort, knights and ladies, dancing by threes, occupied the floor of the hall, and Thomas, the fatigue of his journey from Ildon Hills, forgotten, went forward and joined in the revelry. After a period, however, which seemed to him a very short one, the queen spoke with him apart and bade him prepare to return to his own country. Now, said the queen, how long think you that you have been here? Greets, fair lady, answered Thomas, not above these seven days. You are deceived, answered the queen. You have been seven years in this castle, and it is full time you were gone. Know, Thomas, that the archfiend will come to this castle tomorrow to demand his tribute, 
and so handsome a man you will attract his eye. For all the world would I not suffer you to be betrayed to such a fate. Therefore up and let us be going. This terrible news reconciled Thomas to his departure from Elfinland, and the queen was not long in placing him upon Huntley Bank, where the birds were singing. She took leave of him, and to ensure his reputation bestowed on him the tongue which could not lie. Thomas in vain objected to this inconvenient and involuntary adhesion to veracity, which would make him, as he thought, unfit for church or for market, for king's court or for lady's bower. But all his remonstrances were disregarded by the lady, and Thomas the Rhymer, whenever the discourse turned on the future, gained the credit of a prophet, whether he would or not, for he could say nothing, but was sure to come to pass. Thomas remained several years in his own town near Erkeldoon, and enjoyed the fame of his predictions, several of which are current among the country people to this day. At length, as the prophet was entertaining the Earl of March in his dwelling, a cry of astonishment arose in the village on the appearance of a heart and hind which left the forest and contrary to their shy nature came quietly onward, traversing the village towards the dwelling of Thomas. The prophet instantly rose from the board and acknowledging the prodigy as the summons of his fate, he accompanied the heart and hind into the forest and though occasionally seen by individuals to whom he has chosen to show himself, he has never again mixed familiarly with mankind. Mates, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Every single one of these folk stories are so different. The two Scottish accounts of the Fae interacting with our world was really interesting, as you rarely get to hear accounts without a huge amount of backstory or don't touch this or don't do that. These are straight up stories as if they had happened and people had shared them. Those of us in the know though, regarding the Fae, would have been chiming in saying, mate, don't you dare take a sip from that cup. And the seven years that passed for Thomas Reimer and the hex on him to only tell the truth, even the future, when asked, was really unique. I've also learned something new in that horse and hattock was a term used in conjunction with the Fae. Like, you know, teleporting yourself to France, of all things. <laughs> Mates, I hope you enjoyed this episode and a big thank you for listening. If you enjoy what I do, subscribe because why not? It's free. <laughs> and you'll get to listen to three episodes from me weekly. Mondays are heavily remastered old time radio episodes, the past modernized to the present, and Wednesday to Friday, I just love to surprise you folks with new stories of all kinds, because I like to keep it fresh and different for each episode. Listeners, it's time now to say thank you to those that help support this show via Patreon. Before I start, a big thank you to those Patreons that hopped online and voted for your future stories. I listen really close to my listeners and even closer to my Patreons. There's still time, so if you get a chance to vote on your story types, I'll be sure to narrate them. Also, this vote for your story is a routine activity of mine and only for Patreons to give back to those that support me, and they'll have a say in where the show goes. First up is my Ode Night Tea Titan, the light speed transport pod that shuttles this podcast into space. Maya, the queen of cats, thank you so much for your awesome email. Loved it. With your support, Maya, I've been able to obtain technical support for my website recently and also support the repair of my machine, currently in the process of rebuilding my audio database and in general getting back on my feet. It's taken a bit of time. Thank you for your awesome tier of support though. It's mind-blowingly epic that you support me in the way that you do. Thank you so much, Maya. 
My white tea warlord, Lizasaurus Rex, the T-Rex that chomps my subscription costs away. Mate, amidst all the hubbub of work, I can't wait to finally sit down and read your brilliant email this weekend and make time to respond. Thanks to you, man, I've been able to update a number of routine plugins and ensure that the online video component of my work still remains functional and on track. Thank you so much, buddy, for your support. You're top-notch, Lezza. And my second white tea wallet, because I'm so lucky to have two of them, Paige Kramer, the Factimus Maximus, that puts a pep in my step. I'll be making time this weekend to also respond to your lovely email. I always learn something new chatting to you, mate. Thanks to you, I've been able to look into more Photoshop plugins and cover a portion of the Photoshop subscription costs. Thank you so much for lifting that weight off my shoulders and letting me focus more on the creative side. You're a legend, Paige. And now, the epic, the awesome and all-round brilliant people, my Earl Grey Enforcers. I'm lucky to have. Chad Warren, Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Tea Time Drinker 1, and Divided by Zero. Thank you, my supporters that hurdle me onto Cloud9 with your support. Have a wickedly brilliant weekend, and I'll catch you Monday for more Sherlock Holmes and storytelling. As Sherlock was saying, back to my bees. And as always, till next we be, I mean, meet. <laughs>